the Bible Girl Podcast. I'm Jessica Robinson, and I've gathered my Bible, my journal, some study tools, and highlighters in every color for study time. From the practical to the inspirational, I pray that these podcasts give you the tools and motivation to be a Bible Girl, too. Well, I have enjoyed very much the opportunity to study once again and to teach with Jessica the story of Queen Esther in the Bible. And remember to to set the context for why we're looking at this book at this time right now in our, our church life is because this last year we've been looking at the concept throughout Scripture that God is on the move. And yet there are times where it looks like God's silent or God's hidden or God's aloof or God doesn't care or he's not involved in your life or my life. But the story of Esther tells us that even when God seems like he's hidden and silent, he actually is working. He actually is on the move. And we've been asking this question, can you trust a God who's silent? Should we trust a God who's silent? And the resounding answer from Esther's story is, yes, you should, because he may be silent, but he still saves. He may be hidden, but no, actually he's here and he's working in our midst. He's present and caring for us. You might be thinking, okay, are we playing a game this morning? Pastor's got his dice up front. I did not pull this out of some hot rod, you know, off the the rear view mirror there. I promise that. Those would have been fuzzy. But anyway, uh, this is interesting why we have the dice up front here. Because if you remember in chapter 3 of the story of Esther, the enemy of the Jewish people was rolling dice and praying to his gods to figure out when was the right time to exterminate the Jews, to kill them. And when the story is all said and done and God has come to the rescue, which we're going to be hearing about today, the people, the Jewish people, celebrate spontaneously the deliverance that they have received. And they actually wind up calling the celebration Purim. Purim, from the the Persian word for dice, And then they made it a plural in Hebrew. And it's a reminder that God is the one who's ultimately in control and we can trust in him. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute, how did the Jews get into this kind of a situation? I thought they were God's chosen people. How could could they be threatened so badly with such danger? Well, this is around between 400 and 500 BC, before the time of Christ. The Jewish people had been carried off into exile because of their disobedience to God. They've left their homeland, and they're now living in Persia, ancient Persia. And the Jewish people have been living there for over 100 years. Some of them have come back to their homeland and returned and have rebuilt a new life there. But many have chosen to stay and live in Persia because life is comfortable, life is good. They're able to do well there and prosper there. Two individuals in particular who are there in this story, Jewish people who are there in this story, is a gentleman by the name of Mordecai and his orphaned cousin, a girl, by the name of Esther. And through a miraculous, it seems like, orchestration of events, Esther is chosen to become the queen of Persia, the the wife of the king of Persia, the, the most powerful ruler in all the known world at that time. It's now about five years later after Esther's coronation and wedding to become the queen of Persia. And there's a man who's been promoted to become prime minister of Persia, and his name is Haman. 
Haman is actually an ancestor, a descendant rather, of the ancient people who were the enemies of the Jews. They were called the Amalekites. The Amalekites hated the Jewish people. They attacked the Jewish people. And God had told the Jewish people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier to wipe out the Amalekites and destroy them because they were wicked. They were anti-God. They were anti-life. They were anti-truth. And they were the constant enemy of God and the people of God. But Israel didn't do that. And now one of these descendants is living in Persia, and he's now prime minister of Egypt, uh, rather prime minister of Persia, and he wants to destroy the Jewish people living in that empire at that time. And so he's able to deceive the king, trick the king while they're drinking wine together. Maybe the king was even under the influence at that time. The king signs a law demanding that the Jewish people 11 months later be killed by the people in their communities. The people in their communities are just sort of rise up like angry mobs and destroy the, the Jewish people that are, that are living there. And, and that's what the law says to do. And they, they could seize the property of the Jews as well. Esther, the queen, this young Jewess, is in a dilemma. She has kept her Jewishness silent. As far as we know, the king is not even aware that she's Jewish. And she's called out by her cousin Mordecai to tell the king about what's happening. And she struggles with that. She's afraid to do that. And yet after fasting and praying, she determines she needs to do that exactly. And so we finished chapter 6 last week with Esther already appealing to the king and challenging the king to come back and hear her one more time. And she's going to make a final request, the request that will actually, hopefully, if things go right according to Esther and Mordecai's plan, that the Jewish people actually will begin to be delivered and rescued from this certain annihilation that's going to take place about 11 months later. And so Jessica's going to come now, Jessica Robinson, who's been helping to teach this series, she's going to come and she's going to unpack for us chapters 7 and 8 and help us see what happens when Esther was there talking with the, with the king. Jesse. If you've been following along with us the past two weeks, it shouldn't surprise you that our story starts with the king drinking wine. He's at another banquet. This is the second banquet that Esther has thrown for him and Haman. We ended last week with Haman being summoned to the banquet. We're going to pick it up in chapter 7. I'm going to read you the first few verses. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast... The king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Esther uses again her if statements and, and comes to the king in humility, and she finally lays out what she needs from him. It's interesting here that she is talking about um, 
not bothering the king if her people were just to be sold. She's using some very passive language here. Uh, You know, my people have been sold. She starts out this way, and she will continue this through much of this conversation. She has a very specific plan in that she cannot implicate the king in uh, Haman's misdeeds. You see, the king has agreed to this edict. He handed the, the signet ring to Haman and said, do as you see best. And so anything that she says could implicate the king. And so she starts out with this humility, and she starts out by using very passive language to kind of keep the, uh, the, the enemy, so to speak, hidden for a while so that she doesn't implicate the king in her request. She says, if, if it were just, we're just being sold and there would be money put in the king's coffers, I wouldn't have said anything. But instead, something very different is happening. She also says something very interesting. She says, I and my people. She's finally identifying herself as, as, a, as a Jewish person. But more importantly, she's setting up her accusation of Haman. Let's, let's continue reading in verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. She uses the word adversary and enemy to talk about Haman, but she doesn't actually say who he's an adversary or enemy of. She's kind of setting him up so that he is an adversary of the king. By saying, I, she is implicating him in a plot to kill the queen. But the difference is, is that Haman doesn't know that she's a Jew, and he is unaware of the fact that this edict would would take the king's life as well. So she's kind of framing him as if he is committing an act of treason. And the reason she's doing this is because the king needs to be able to stop Haman and not make himself look bad since he agreed to this edict. The king is angry at this, and he storms out of the palace. He goes out to the palace gardens, and of course, Haman is terrified. And so he throws himself on the mercy of the queen. And it says that when the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, in verse 8, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. It is likely the king is aware of the fact that Haman is not trying to assault the queen, but what he's done is he's created a very specific uh, error here. And that is, we know culturally from this time, there was a a law, a rule, that those um, in the palace, the men of the palace, were not to get within seven steps of any woman in the harem. And so now he has his reason. He doesn't have to use the edict. He doesn't have to use his own complicity in it to be able to condemn Haman. He can condemn Haman for treason against the queen and for trying to assault her. And that's exactly what happens. It says in verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman's prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Essentially, Haman is executed for things he did not do. The king is able to remove Haman without making himself look weak. 
Human responsibility and divine sovereignty come face to face here in this passage. As theologian John Calvin says, man falls as God's providence ordains, but he falls by his own fault. Haman fell by his own pride, by his own bitterness and his anger and his rage that was unchecked. He fell by his own devices and played right into the plans of God. After this happens, we see another great reversal. If we have Haman, who thought he was going to be elevated and then had to elevate Mordecai, and those gallows that he planned for him hung there empty, and now Mordecai is exalted as Haman is hung on those gallows. In, verse, in chapter 8 of verse 1, it says that the king gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. We now see Mordecai being elevated to the same position. He has not only the power that Haman had, but he also now controls his household and his wealth as well. You know, when Esther brings Mordecai in, the Bible says that she reveals who he was to her. And I think it's more than just saying, this is my cousin. I think she's saying, he's been instrumental in helping me. He's, he saved the king's life. And in turn, he's saving our people's lives. And, and we've worked together for this. He is someone special. He is a good man. And as a result of that, because the king had seen his loyalty to him, he rewards that loyalty by elevating Mordecai to this position. And now, now that their great enemy is gone, they still have to deal with the edict. And now Mordecai has been elevated to this position where with, together with Esther, they can begin the rescue of their people. It says in um, verse um, 3, Esther spoke again to the king. It says um, in verse 5, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written, which he wrote, to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who were all in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The king, he, he listens to her request once again with humility and in great savvy. She's giving him an opportunity to be the, the hero to save the day. But we know from this king that he's not the best at doing the regular kingly duties. He likes the feasts and the parties. He likes collecting women. But when it comes to the, the palace work, he tends to delegate that to someone else. And so he does that as well. He takes Mordecai, who has the signet ring, and he tells them, he and Esther, to do what they think is best to try to change this ruling. Now, we know that the rules and the, the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked so they have to come up with an edict that reverses it without actually canceling it. And so what they come up with is found here in verse, um, we're going to start reading in uh, verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar. 
A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. This is a full reversal of the original text. He uses the same language, to kill, to annihilate, to destroy. He allows them to take their plunder. He allows them to attack and to defend themselves against anyone that comes after them, women and children included. The Jews are allowed to defend themselves on that day and stand up for themselves. It would take about three months for couriers to get the word through all 127 provinces. So the Bible tells us that the fastest horses that were bred for speed went out with all haste with the, the edict written in the language of whatever peoples were in the province so that everyone would know and would be prepared. Now, you might wonder a few things as we talk about this story today and this account of what is going on with Esther and Mordecai. Some of the, some of the parts of the story seem a little maybe wrong or barbaric. I mean, Esther essentially lies to have her enemy killed. And we also have Mordecai and Esther writing up this edict that allows them to kill women and children. It seems like if we're the good guys, we shouldn't be that bad, right? We shouldn't be that evil. And sometimes we, we take a look at Bible characters and we have this, this thing where we either elevate them into being all good or all bad, or we look at them as some kind of uh, morality tale, as in do these things and don't do these things. But it's important to remember that throughout the Bible, first of all, all these stories are meant to teach us about God and who he is. And secondly, is they were playing a specific role in their part in history. And it's hard to judge them by today's standards. So to do this, to understand what's really going on here, we need to talk a little bit about the concept of holy war. Because Mordecai and Esther are agents of this holy war, and they are operating as such. And their choices might seem extreme to us, but there's a reason for them. You see, we, we hear of holy war all the time, and, and we think of maybe, maybe you think of, you hear a lot about jihad today, and you hear of holy war, of one nation having this righteous indignation against another and wanting to wipe them out. Or you might think of, of holy war when you hear about the Crusades, when you study them in school or watch a movie about the Crusades, and that was considered a holy war. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a nation against another nation, and we're not even talking about Israel against another nation. What we're talking about is God against evil and wickedness. You see, back in the, the first time, uh, first week we talked about Esther, I mentioned that, that sin came into the world, and as a result, the world is broken. And when sin came into our world, God couldn't, just like Esther and Mordecai, couldn't change the original edict. God couldn't just ignore sin. It was here now. What he had to do was create a counteroffer. And so up until that point in time that this counteroffer came along, he was consistently fighting and battling and warring against sin. Sometimes he did it supernaturally. If you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah when he rained down fire and brimstone upon a whole city that was too wicked. Or maybe when the Israelites marched around the city of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down and they defeated their enemies. But other times it was more, more overt. He actually told the Israelites, go out and kill that group of people. Fight against them because their wickedness and their evil is so great, it has to be dealt with. See, our sin is so terrible, it requires a high price. It requires uh, it to be dealt with. But the counteroffer came in the person of Jesus. And the final battle of holy war was fought on the cross. When Jesus died, 
and was buried and rose again. The battle against sin and wickedness was won, and now we live a different way. We can forgive. We can restore. We can work for peace. We can love and extend mercy, and we can build up the kingdom of God because the holy war was satisfied with the death of cross. God promised a way for his people to be delivered from sin, from that power of sin and wickedness, and he kept that promise when Jesus came. That's what the story of Esther is about. It's about preserving. It's about preserving the people so that Jesus would come, and he would one day come, and he will one day sit on the throne in Jerusalem. We don't need to fight holy wars for God. What we do instead is we work to build up the kingdom of God. What Esther was doing in this passage was something that God had started all the way back in Exodus 17. She had a clear role in redemptive history as an instrument of fulfilling a promise that God made, and that was that I will wipe out the memory of the Amalekites forever. Because they were so wicked and evil, they had to go. Deuteronomy 25, he tells them, when you get into the promised land, I want you to remember, you have to blot out their memory forever. Saul was put in charge of that in battle against the Amalekites and King Agag. In 1 Samuel 15, he tells them to go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. And listen to the wording, do not spare them but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Esther is doing what Saul was unwilling to do. She is playing this last role in this part of the holy war, ensuring that God's people would survive and that the promised Messiah would one day come. Mordecai leaves the palace in new clothes. It tells us in verse 15 of chapter 8, he went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And here's a great reversal because in chapter 4, when the edict went out everywhere, it says that the city mourned and fasted. They were weeping and lamenting. And then in this chapter, as the new edict is proclaimed, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Verse 17 says, in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples from the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. The language in the Hebrew is a little bit vague there. We're not quite sure if they actually converted to Judaism or if they just identified themselves with the Jewish people. I think that they saw something going on there in all of these, these things that seem to us as coincidences. When you stop and you look at the big picture, you see the hand of God clearly. And perhaps God's unseen hand was recognizable to them as well. And they were able to turn toward the Jews in fear because of the God they serve was so great and so mighty. And so the edict is out and the couriers are racing out to tell everyone to be prepared. Everything's in place and now they just have their final battle. Thank you, Jessica. <clears throat> so what happens? This edict has been signed, this new law has been written. What's the result? What takes place? Well, let's see in chapter nine. 
Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very, the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And they also killed, and here are the 10 sons of Haman. And if you were in a synagogue where this story was being read on the Feast of Purim, they would read all 10 of these names in one breath, and everybody would cheer when you get done. And I can't do that, so I'm not going to. I can barely pronounce them, and it would take me five minutes. But what's interesting is every one of the names of the sons of Haman, all 10 of these sons that Haman had boasted in, these sons are all named after different deities, different gods and goddesses of of the Persian people. And it's just a reminder that that Haman was hell-bent on destroying the Jewish people because he had his inspiration from the forces of wickedness and darkness. This was not just some sort of racial hatred. It was that, but it was bigger than that. It was a hatred of God and his people, the people that he had called into existence, the Jews. And they destroyed them, it says in verse 10, the 10 sons of of Haman, the the son of Hamadatha, uh, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And what's interesting here is you're going to see this phrase repeated three times in chapter 9. The Jews attacked their enemies when they attacked them, but they didn't seize their property, even though the law had permitted them to do that. And it's just a reminder that they weren't doing this for economic sake. This wasn't about financial gain. This was also a reminder that just as in the holy war that Jessica described, Everything in that battle belonged to God. It was all to be devoted to him. And so the Jews didn't take any money, property, possessions. There was no war booty or anything like that uh, after this because it was all about self-defense and it was all about honoring the name of God and doing it his way. That very day, it says in verse 11, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It is granted you. And, and what, is, what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther says this, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this king's, this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's palaces, provinces 
also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, I got to admit that when we read this passage and we think about the great threat against the Jewish people and we're grateful that they were rescued at the last minute by the king's new law that countermanded the first one and allowed the Jews to defend themselves, but some of us kind of scratch our head and say, 75,000 people? Boy, it almost sounds like the Jews are just as bloodthirsty as their enemies, the, the Persian pagans and, and people like Haman. They, they sound just as bad. And part of this story, as Jessica reminded us a moment ago, is, is to, to point all attention to the living God. The humans in this story are not the heroes. They are not held up necessarily as people who are great paragons of virtue. They're not great idols and, and people that we need to imitate and follow their example necessarily. In fact, the, the Jewish people could be just as bloodthirsty as any pagans that you and I would know, just as you and I have the capacity of doing that. There's a little bit of wicked, in fact, a lot of wickedness in my heart and in your heart as well, because we're all sinners in the eyes of God. We've all fallen short of what he expects. So this reminds us of that. But it says something else. The fact that God would cause this law to be written that the Jews could defend themselves and fight against their enemies and still those enemies would attack. Still would they try to destroy the Jewish people knowing full well that the Jews could defend themselves. I just kind of shake my head over that and say, what were these people thinking? And yet it reveals what a great animosity and hatred even from the evil one comes through the heart of people toward the Jews toward the, the people of, of the chosen race. This anti-Semitism, this, this hatred of the Jewish people has been around since before the days of Haman and Esther and Mordecai. And it certainly is very present in our world today, and you know it's true when a third of the Jews were killed in the 20th century during the Holocaust. That's just absolutely astounding. And yet, the human heart full of bigotry, hatred, prejudice is very real and very powerful today and it's only the blood of Christ that can cleanse our hearts and it's only the power of Christ that can set us free from that hatred of other people and make us see and help us to see and, and open our eyes to understand that we are all the, the children of God in the sense that he created us and we were made in his image and we bear his likeness and we all have value and worth in his eyes and we can't be holding these grudges and this hatred and this, this violent animosity toward one another as well. It says that as we continue reading that uh, in verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar and on the 14th day, the, the people in the countryside, they rested and they made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th and then rested on the 15th day, making a day of feasting and gladness. This is just a little interesting detail, what I want to point out to you. They spontaneously, 
after this great victory, after the defeat of the enemy, after this great reversal, what looked like their certain demise and annihilation throughout the Persian Empire, all the Jews being destroyed, this great reversal, not only have the Jews been protected, but they've been preserved. Not only have they been rescued, but they've been elevated and lifted up and given honor. All this has happened, this great reversal has happened. And what do they do? They start celebrating. They spontaneously start celebrating. They don't do it because somebody commands it. They just start doing it. Why? Because there's a lot to laugh about, a lot to celebrate. God has come through to rescue them. In fact, if anything, the story of Esther tells us, it's this, God always gets the last laugh. God always gets the last laugh. God's people always get the last laugh. And so when it looks like the forces of darkness are crashing in upon us to destroy us, we have to remember that God gets the last laugh. In fact, that's what Purim is all about, the festival of the Jews. We read in the rest of chapter 9, it says that uh, Esther and Mordecai send out other edicts to the Jews throughout the provinces, throughout the whole empire, and they say, look, you should codify what you're doing, this celebration. We should memorialize this and remember that, that we were rescued, that, that there was a great reversal. Our fortunes were changed. We were mourning and weeping and grieving, and now we're celebrating and we're rejoicing over this great deliverance and this great rescue that's come to us. We've got relief and rest from our enemies persecuting us, and we should celebrate that. Purim is a, a time of celebrating and feasting. And, and so when they read the story of Esther in the synagogue, you have people cheering for Mordecai and booing for Haman. They were told in the ancient times that you were supposed to drink and celebrate and feast, and you were to drink so much until you couldn't tell the difference between someone saying, Mordecai be blessed and Haman be cursed. I mean, that's really celebrating and really partying, if we can say it that way. People would dress up. People would wear crowns for Esther and royal turbans for Mordecai and a dunce hat for Haman and other, the other wicked characters. And they would dress up and have parades and they would do all of this. In fact, it even says that they would give gifts in uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 22. As the days of the Jews, they got relief from their enemies and, that on that, and as that month that they had turned for them from sorrow to gladness, from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, that they should give gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. It was to be a time of feasting and celebration because of this tremendous reversal as God gets the last laugh. Now, there are three things I want to leave you with before we conclude today that are based on the idea of the dice that Haman was rolling to determine when was the right time to destroy the Jews. Remember, the Jewish people, they called this feast of celebration, this festival of celebration, they called it, they called it Purim because, remember, the Persian word for dice was pur, P-U-R, and the Hebrews just added the I-M at the end to pluralize it, and they called it Purim. There's several things that we learn when we think about the dice that were used there. The first is this, is that God is a God of providence. We see God's providence. And by God's providence, we're talking about the fact that God is in control and that he's orchestrating all the events of nature and time and history and human life 
to work out what is best for his glory and for the good of his people. God is in control and the destiny of his people are not being shaped by the the dyes that a pagan enemy is casting to figure out how to kill them. No, God is in control and he is in charge and that's something worth laughing about and celebrating and cheering for. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. Look at this verse. Let's say this together. We've talked about this a couple times in in this passage, this study through Esther. The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. It's the same word that we we get uh, here in Esther chapter 9 and 10 for Purim. The lot, the dice, the straws that are drawn. The lot is cast in the lap, but the Lord's the one who decides what's really going on. You and I may make our plans. You and I may think we know what are the best choices that we should follow, but God's in control. Uh, Have you heard about Dorian? God knows all about him. Knows what that hurricane is doing out in the middle of the ocean. Knows where it will go. Know what it will do. Know who will be affected. God knows all that because he's in charge. But he also knows about that little mosquito that's bothering you on the picnic later today. And he knows about all the other details of your life and my life, whether they seem big and consequential or little and inconsequential. God knows and is working through all these things to accomplish his will. When you and I are wrestling with this issue of can we trust a God who is silent? Remember, yes, we can because God, the God of Scripture, is in control of all things. We can trust in God's providence because he's working all things out for our good and for his glory. Esther's story reminds us of that. Something else these dice remind us of when we think about the Feast of Purim and the story of Esther and the deliverance of the Jews. We are reminded also the fact of God's provision, not just God's providence, but God's provision. It's interesting that one of the first things that the Jewish people started doing when they were celebrating was not just throw a party, although they did that, and not just celebrate, although they did that, but they did that celebration in a very tangible way. They gave gifts of food, sweet foods, savory foods, delicious foods and meals to each other and to the poor. They would care for each other and, and say, I want to celebrate. I made this cake. Let's have this cake. Here, I bought these donuts. Let's have these donuts. Here, let's do this and share this meal together and just enjoy that. I made you a pie. I made you a cake. Look, I've had some, I've just, you know, cooked a half a a rack of lamb. Let's enjoy it together and celebrate this. And they would share this food. And the words that are used here in in Esther chapter 9 and verse um, Verse 22 here, it's, it's the word they gave gifts of food to one another, and it's talking about actually giving each other portions. It's the Hebrew word that's used there. They gave portions to each other, portions of delicious food to each other. There's a verse in the, in the passage that we read together uh, during our worship time earlier in the service in Psalm 16. If you turn to that slide, Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6 right in the heart of all that, reminds us that that no matter how dark and dreary and discouraging your situation is, you actually are rich in God's eyes because you've received an inheritance from him. He is your portion. He is your food. Can we say it that way? He's exactly what you need 
to enjoy life to the fullest. In Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, let's read this together. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen out for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. These are the words that are lifted right out of Esther's story. The lots. You're, you're my lot, Lord. Not just what the dice is, the number that are revealed, not just the dice themselves, but the results that are determined. My lot in life. You're my lot in life. You are everything that I'm looking for, everything that I'm longing for, everything that I need. You're my inheritance. You have worked all of it out for my advantage. That's what King David wrote when he wrote Psalm 16. You are exactly what I need. When the Jews were celebrating Purim, when they were giving those food gifts to each other, portions of food, they were reminding each other, the Lord's our portion. Even though we're here in the heart of this pagan Persian empire, the Lord's our portion. Even though we're far away from home, the Lord is our portion. Even when death is breathing down our necks, the Lord is our portion. He is everything I need, you need, we need. He is everything we need, and we can trust and depend on Him. In the deepest needs we have, He has the capability of providing them. Even the gift of eternal life, He provides for us as well. The dice of Purim remind us of God's providence, His, his sovereign control, working all things out for our good and His glory, and it reminds us of His provision, that He Himself is what we need. Our greatest need is met in knowing Him. But it reminds us of a third thing, a very important thing. It reminds us, these dice remind us of the presence of God. The presence of God. That God is not absent. That God is not silent, really. That God is not unseen, really. He's here, and He's working, and He's present in our lives. Esther, as you know, never mentions the name of God, never is he prayed to. We don't hear any miracles attributed to him, and yet it's very clear that God is working. In fact, what is remarkable about the story of Esther, this is a story for your times and my times, our times. So often we think we desperately need God to show up and do some great miracle. Heal me of this disease. Do this great, tremendous thing. Provide this money all of a sudden. Do this in some great way. Bring down this great, wicked person and raise up a godly leader. Do that, this great miracle we're longing for, praying for, asking for. And God so often is working in your life and in my life through all the little things, the details of our lives. And in the process, it's easy for us to say, oh, boy, am I lucky. Or what a coincidence. And it's not a coincidence and it's not luck. God was working always behind the scenes to do what's good for us and what brings glory to him, to provide for our needs and take care of us and to be here with us. One of the Jewish rabbis said during the Middle Ages, it wasn't until the story of Esther was written that the Jews really started believing in the Torah, the word of God. 
You say, what? No, he said, they would believe in the miracles and they would believe in these great divine interventions in human history and time and space. They would believe in that and trust that, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the manna, the, the, the special bread that God provided miraculously every day, the, the plagues of the, the Passover and the, the miracle of the Exodus, the, the stopping of the Red the the waters of the Jordan River and the conquering of the land of Palestine, these great miracles, even David with a slingshot and stone killing Goliath, these great miracles they were aware of and they would worship God for those great miracles. But when they got the story of Esther, they realized they didn't have to have a big miracle. They had to have God's word and his promise and they could trust in that that God would always do what is right and good even when you can't see him. He's there, he's protecting, and he's keeping his promise. You can be sure of that. I think we have to wrestle with the question though. Do the Jews still believe in the lesson of Esther that God is present, that God is providing? that God is in control and that God is protecting, especially when you look at the Holocaust in the middle of the 20th century when a third of the Jews, six million Jews, were executed under the, the, the Nazi regime in the death camps. It was interesting that the Nazis hated the story of Esther and if a Jew was ever found with a written copy of Esther, they would be killed on the spot. In, in one of the prison camps, they would be killed on the spot. And yet the Jews had heard this story so many times that they could recite it from memory and they would write it down and secret it away. Once there was a group of, of Jewish prisoners at, at the prison camp at uh, Auschwitz. They were so dismayed over God allowing the Holocaust to happen, their friends, their family, their neighbors being executed in the gas chambers and in the ovens that the Jews there actually put God on trial. And they had a lawyer for the defense and they had a prosecutor and they had a judge and they had a jury and they put God on trial, their God on trial. And the court unanimously determined that God indeed was guilty and deserved to die. And as soon as the trial was over, you know what those Jews did? They went to prayer meeting they went to prayer meeting. Why? Because even though they couldn't understand why God, with all his power and all his wisdom and all his grace, allowed these very painful, difficult things to happen, these horrific calamities to occur, they still agreed that he still was in control and that he was still worthy of worship. And they worshiped him. For you and I, what this means, when we think of the story of Esther and we think about the dice, God's providence and his provision and his presence, it makes us realize that when God did step into our world, he was put on trial and he was condemned and he was nailed to the cross not for his, his sins, not because he deserved it, but because of that holy war against sin and wickedness and evil, he stepped into our world and he willingly made himself the victim of our crimes 
going to the cross and dying in our place as our substitute. And in so doing, through his resurrection, Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil once and for all. He entered into our suffering. He showed us that God is here. God does love. God does care. He's not hidden and aloof. He is here. We see that in Jesus once and for all beyond every shadow of a doubt. God loves you. God cares for you. God wants to save you. He is this God. It's not the roll of the dice of a pagan despot, a cruel, barbaric enemy like Haman. That's not what determines our future. What determines our future is the God who sees you and loves you and is here with you. You're not alone. God cares, and he's here for you. He gets the last laugh, so you can get the last laugh too, because Christ came to set us free. Let's pray together, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Remember that Christ has come to be our Savior. Dear Father in heaven, I have to admit that when we see the atrocities of the last century and the, the barbaric way that your people have been persecuted and killed over the years, even, even not just the Jews, but even Christians dying, being burned to death, imprisoned, raped, tortured. It's hard for us to celebrate that. And so we're not celebrating that. But we do celebrate the fact that you are a God who does love and care. Those Jews at Auschwitz understood that you would not let the Jews as a race die. That you would preserve them. And we as children of God, as Christians today, have your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Therefore, we can boldly say the Lord is our helper and we need not fear what anyone should do to us. Help us to hold on to that confidence and that truth. Enable us to be brave in doing your work for your glory. We can trust you when you're silent because you're here. You're in control. You're all we need. You're our protector. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we ask you to bless the bread and the cup that we're about to share. And I ask that most of all, you'd help us never to forget how good and great you are, almighty God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Go to BibleGrowPodcast.com to email me, download show notes, sign up for my newsletter, print a monthly scripture writing list, and listen to past episodes. Join the Bible Girl Facebook group to get the latest podcast news and to interact with me and other listeners. I'm all over social media as Jessie L. Robinson. That's J-E-S-S-I-L Robinson. I'd love for you to friend or follow me. Join me again for another episode of Bible Girl.